Hello, and welcome to Good People to Know, a Downworth podcast brought to you by WFI Insurance, where we talk about the things that matter most to regional Australians. Before we begin, I wanted to warn our listeners that today's episode discusses mental health, suicide and suicidal ideation, which some people might find confronting. If you or somebody you know is suicidal, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14, or use their text service on 0477 13 11 14. Data suggests that the number of people with a diagnosed mental health condition is around the same, regardless of whether you live in a regional or a metropolitan area. However, it's been suggested that more mental health conditions go undiagnosed in regional Australia, and many of the triggers leading to conditions are quite different to the cities. To make matters worse, suicides are the top 10 leading causes of death in outer regional, remote and very remote areas, with rates of suicide increasing with remoteness. And according to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, in 2019, the age-standardised suicide rate outside of Australia's capital cities was over 60% higher. To discuss this very important topic, to help him understand the issue, and to know where to turn to for support, I'm joined today by Scott Hammond, CEO of Lifeline Broken Hill Country to Coast. With so much to discuss, we are releasing this conversation in two parts, with part one being released last week. In part one, we discuss the statistics and the unique challenges faced by regional Australians and the Indigenous community. In this episode, part two, we discuss the role of social media, the pressures faced by the farming community, the under-resourcing of mental health support services, and how people can care for the mental health of themselves and others. Just on the topic of um, social media or mental health, and particularly among young people, have you seen an increase in people reaching out as a result of you know, the impacts of social media? Yes, yeah, social media is an interesting one, isn't it? Um, the jury's out in my mind uh, because you know, there's this, it's, it's a unique situation because it creates so many issues, but at the same time, um, it creates so many advantages um, in in society. Uh, a guy said to me, you know, if you know, like a gun, you know, if you if the gun's in the right hands in the right circumstance, being used for what it should be used, um, you know, we don't have any issues. And and once said to me, the internet's exactly the same, and social media and all those sort of things. So, you know, we see some of those great things. You know, when um, I love it when you're in community and and you know, there's you know, you see somebody that's. I mean, we use social media ourselves. Um, for fundraisers and we have people that are going to go and do a walk or a swim or, or that and I'm, on the social media they put it out there and that's you know get in there and support you know you've seen during disasters and how many people rally through social media um, you know and, and 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 initially I remember in social media the first time I ever got into onto Facebook I think it was about 2006 or something like that and initially it was just a way that you could reconnect with with your friends and you know, we're now seeing a, a, a change in that and you're seeing, um, you know, all these different types of social medias and um, the quick snapshots and, you know, um, and, and being reduced to, to quicker content um, and video stuff. So you see the good, um, the bad and the ugly with it and, and I suppose one of the things that we do know is um, it does have um, negative impacts on our young people the internet, oh, I suppose, people out there would, would remember the days of, uh, and this is when I first um, started in, in youth work, you'd go into the office, you'd sit down, you'd turn the computer on, you'd press download for the first couple of emails, they'd say one of 35 emails coming through, and <laughs> you'd be able to go off and have a coffee, 
have two meetings um, and then come back and then you'd finally be getting your, your, your um, downloads. And, and the internet was really poor um, in regional areas. And now, with it so fast, if the internet's really poor, we tend to feel like, um, the, you know, we're being let down. But I often reflect what the internet was like back then. Um, and going back to my original, that gave you time. So in that time, we were able to go and have conversations, have a coffee, have a meeting. Um, it's now been replaced with that fast speed constant. It doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. Um, you know, to the point we have it with us 24 hours. You know, you used to be able to go home, get away from um, these these devices, but now they're on our phones and um, it's relentless. So for somebody that's, you know, experiencing um, bullying and, and, and torment from, from people out there that um, it doesn't leave them. It's constant. And I think, unfortunately, that's part of, you know, um, you know the negative stuff that we see that um, is quite difficult to control. It is, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Scott, a lot of this podcast series, the WFI Good People Know podcast, is, you know, we're dealing with regional rural Australia and with a focus on you know, the farming community. What's unique in your experience of the farming community? Yeah, certainly that um, isolation is definitely a huge factor in that. I mean, we, we certainly know, you know, the, the lack of services, the drought, isolation, you know, social stigma, you know, f- fewer employment opportunities have always been those, those general issues that people have, have um, dealt with over, over many years. But like I was saying, it's, it's for people growing up in areas where um, you're seeing more focus on services in the cities and that it's just making it so much tougher and harder um, for people to make the decision to be in those remote regional areas. Uh, And what you're seeing is more people are saying, you know, if we can't get the school teachers, we can't get the resources um, that are needed um, to support living in remote areas, um, they have no other choice than to, to, you know, to move and relocate um, to other areas, so into to bigger areas. So, and, and that's not where people are used to, to going. So you're seeing now a generation of kids that are choosing to go and live in um, built-up metropolitan or, or bigger regional areas, you know, the, the, the ocean and Newcastle and places like that, which are becoming very popular areas. So... Um, you know, that's leaving families and, and generations going, okay, um, our kids are now growing up in another area where now we don't have the kids and they're having to rethink about, you know, what do I do and the decisions that they're making into the future. Um, we now don't have good quality health services, you know, um, as we used to. Um, so, you know, the services aren't there, the travels to then get good quality services. So, you know, even for, for generational farmers that are going, okay, the kids don't want to be here, um, you know, what's the point of us being here? Um, so you're seeing a, a real um, challenge um, for men in particular because I think um, there's that stigma where if you do walk away from it, um, you know, you're letting everybody else down. Um, and... And that's all, all, all they know as well. So for, if you're a 50-year-old male living in a regional remote area on a farming community and you, you're now being confronted with all these decisions, um, 
you're living, leaving everything that you know, all you know, and that's all you've done for 50 years and that's all you've grown up with. Um, so that becomes probably a very unique challenge that we're seeing right now and we're seeing more and more so, um, you know, each year. That's a great uh, lead into my next question, Scott. Um, you know, you talked about the retraction maybe of, of services from regional rural Australia. So is access to quality mental health care an issue, particularly as it relates to self-harm or suicide? Yeah, it continues to be an issue. And, and I suppose um, it's, it's the challenge that we face now that we've got more resources than we've ever had that's being put into uh, mental health and wellbeing. So I suppose now the challenge is for, for us as services is to be um, making sure that, you know, we're making sure that we're, we're adequately u- utilising um, those funds to put into the best areas uh, and for those priorities. I often think at times, we talk about politics and politics I often see gets in the way of good decision making um, and where resources need need to be spent. I often look at some of the service providers that we have in, in regional communities and you look at how under-resourced they are and then all of a sudden you hear another service that's coming in that's similar um, and you quite often sit back and go, well, why haven't we just supported that service that's providing a good service in the community that's struggling um, to ensure that that service can be sustainable. So I tend to sit there and think at the moment, a lot of the times what we do is it's counterproductive. Um, For example, we we announced just recently a whole stack of money that's gonna go into mental health and out to regional areas and, and in particular focus around employing people and putting services in that have the lived experience or social work background, moving away from so much the setting and being focused on clinical and hospital settings and getting people out into safe havens and all these other types of models, whether it's, you know, we have a a model ourselves called um, the Connect model, which is a very early intervention model where people can just, you know, walk in and they don't have to um, need a referral. You don't have to fit any form of criteria so we break down all those barriers but then it's about making sure that then we're putting the right money into the right areas rather than um, you know having a whole duplication another set of um, services that come in um, and actually supporting those organizations that are already established in in those regional areas because if you don't on the other side is it you know the question that I often ask is um, where where are we going to get these people from um, and I've seen it firsthand where you've got a really good service that's providing a really good service to community and then we get another service that comes in very similar. Um, all that ends up happening is some of the staff from that original service move across into the other service. It weakens that service. Um, so we have two services that um, are struggling to provide a quality of service. So in hindsight, you go, well, wouldn't it be better to then put more money into that service that's doing well to make it better? So what can people do? We, talk, we use the term resilience quite a lot, but what, what, what are some techniques or, or, or tips that people can use to, to help boost their mental wellbeing? I think the most important thing is to know that you're not alone. 
Um, and I think that's always um, the first point and most important thing that we can always remember. Um, as much as how insignificant you may think it is um, or how hard it, and, and we do know it's, it, it's hard to, to reach out and ask for support. Um, but I think we need to, to really go off of what, what do we know and what have we learnt and what, what do we know and what, what, why are we actually seeing a, a difference in, in people actually and why um, people are reaching out importantly is um, those key messaging around, you know, it's okay um, not to be okay to ask for support, um, to get help. Um, and that is the first crucial step, and it's the hardest step, but it's the first step to recovery. And anybody that's ever gone down the path of depression, anxiety, and survived will tell you that they are there because they've reached out and they've asked for help. Um, so I always say to anyone out, um, anyone anywhere, pick up the phone, you know, call Lifeline, um, contact a service. Um, if you've got a service in your community, walk into that service and let them know that you're not okay and they will start the road to better mental health and wellbeing. So to, on that point, I suppose, and moving on a little bit, how can Australians support one another if they feel that someone isn't themselves? Um, and particularly, I guess, from a, looking at regional Australians, Scott? Yeah, I think for, for regional Australians um, supporting each other, I think, you know what, it's, it's, it's just amazing to see how many people now will, um, you know, reach out and support people. And I think that's through the extensive training and education that's taken place. And, and whether that's through media and that as well, and I think media's played a real big part over the years of, you know, when, when they've been um, providing stories, you know, call Lifeline, call Beyond Blue, um, you know, these services that are, that are available. So, um, and I think, you know, being um, proactive and understanding um, our roles and responsibilities, I think that's the key. Um, to any sort of regional community is um, I don't, I think a lot of emphasis over the years has been the roles and responsibilities have sat within the service and it's like, well, I'm not going to talk to my best mate because um, that's not for me um, to have that conversation. They need to talk to an expert. I think what we're seeing now, under the, especially under those peer supports and just awareness programs and training, I encourage people to participate in, the, in trainings. We have awesome training programs that give you the ability to be able to recognise somebody that may be struggling. Um, and that's, you know, the first step. And, and then, you know, how to have that conversation. Um, you know, that's, that's tough. Some people just can recognise somebody's struggling, can have a conversation and then say, hey, come with me and we'll go get help. Um, not everyone's like that. Some people just really struggle to recognise, respond or be able to refer. So I think the importance of training and training people in communities builds up more um, resilience in with, within communities and gatekeepers and, and our ability then to understand then what is the community role and responsibility. So I think you've got service providers that can take care of um, the individual um, and the, their mental health and wellbeing, um, but certainly as a community um, we can play a very active role in being able to recognise, respond and refer your best mate, your mum, your sister, your auntie, whoever it is, 
to be able to get them to the appropriate support that they need. And I guess, you know, it is as simple as just if you're seeing someone who's not normal with themselves, just asking, you know, are you okay, isn't it? It's, uh, you know, and then, then, then helping them from there. And not being afraid um, to ask the pointy question. Um, you know, never be afraid. And we see a lot of people that come in to um, you know, participate in our trainings, you know, they would go, oh, well, there's no way I'd ever ask somebody if, if they're suicidal, you know, what happened. You know, that could potentially put that, um, you know, in their minds. You know, it, it's, it, that's not the case. Um, so, you know, we always say, you know, ask somebody directly, you know, are you thinking you know, of suicide, because if they are, um, you know, it's now's the time to act and get them immediate support, whether that's at a hospital service or an ambulance or whatever. So, um, and, you know, even if people aren't necessarily suicidal, but they're not feeling right, actually starting to, to listen uh, and be able to listen with intent, um, you know, and that's really important. I think that's where, you know, Lifeline and our ability to be able to listen with intent because we don't see the person on the other end of the phone. We've got no signals to, you know, we've, we, we can't see the way they're dressed. We're not able to see the way that, you know, we don't know if they'd normally be, um, you know, with lipstick on and everything, but today they've got no, their hair hasn't been done. So all those other, other signs you can't. So the ability to listen with intent is a skill set that's unique to Lifeline Australia and our telephone crisis support workers. We've been able to adapt that into the training. So to be able to share a skill set like that through a training program is um, priceless for for community and and suicide prevention. And then you know being able to refer people to the appropriate service. I mean, there's nothing worse than you know going to a service, telling your story, and then being told um, that's not the right service, um, and then having to go back out and tell it again. So. You know, being able to, you know, educate our community on, on you know, the appropriate service that you need to, to refer to. I, I, I reflect on um, a couple of times where um, even in the media, when I was saying about the media, the media would talk about a domestic violence situation and quite often would then say if this has caused trauma or anything, call Lifeline. Um, you know, if they're talking about a instance of domestic violence and somebody may be um, feeling that they are going through domestic violence, they should be calling 1-800-RESPECT and not Lifeline. Um, so, you know, the messaging around, so there even within um, national, within media, you know, we still got a, a long way to go about directing people to the right channels. Um, and, and that's also within community and our trainings and how important it is to make sure that we direct people to, to the appropriate channel because there's nothing um, worse than reliving that trauma over and over again before you actually get any form of support. Yeah, that, that's great advice and probably leads well into my next question, Scott. So um, just tell us how Lifeline supports regional Australians. We support regional Australians in, in many different ways and, and we've been doing it for, we're coming up to 60 years um, you know, and that's, um, you know, a long time. And, and for us as an organisation, we, Reverend um, Brian Nichols, um, we're the fifth lifeline uh, to be established in, in Australia. So we had the first one that was in South West Sydney and then we had Adelaide and I think there was a couple of others. But, um, 
And that was less than 12 months after the first lifeline was established in, in Sydney. Um, so back then, um, you know, we had some, some people that had um, the foresight to see that um, this was an important service that needed to be able to support regional remote people. Um, and I suppose one of the things that we've seen over the years is, is the ability to be, to be innovative because you don't have the resources. Um, so a lot of people out there would think, you know, what is Lifeline? Um, Lifeline's our 13, 11, 14 service. Well, Lifeline has, has um, progressed uh, and evolved um, over those 60 years. We now see that we have 13 yarn, an Aboriginal, dedicated Aboriginal um, service, crisis service, telephone 24-7, um, run by um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, we see a tech service for young people um, and the tech service, you know, that, that has been able to um, provide access to people that we previously didn't realise that could not access our telephone services. So, you know, even that within itself, for those people, you know, we didn't realise how many people out there um, actually struggled to, had picked up the phone and then hung up the phone because they couldn't get the words out. They struggled to get the words out. The tech services, it's given those people a voice. So people can now access Lifeline 24-7 through a tech service. You can be a young kid at school going through some of the biggest challenges and sitting in a classroom setting um, with a phone and, you know, actually reach out to, to get support through a, through a Lifeline service. You can be at any, to any, any place, any time. Specifically around regional areas, Lifeline's ability to, to adapt to each community is very unique. So whichever Lifeline you may visit, each one is, is, is different and adapted to those communities. Um, so we provide face-to-face counselling services. Um, we provide um, training, accidental tr counselling training, safe talk training, various suicide prevention trainings. We do a lot of social media awareness People are always um, familiar with our, our retail outlets. I mean, our, our Lifeline op shops. Um, and, you know, they, they, they support a significant amount of money to be able to ensure that we can provide um, the on-the-ground services, so not only just our 13, um, our digital services, but also our face-to-face -face services, gambling counselling services, um, youth counsellors, um, you name it. You know, we, we're, we're doing, um, you know, and... You know, more recently, Lifeline's played a significant role in um, emergency responses. I mean, when when people have been faced um, in situations where they've they've lost a house, um, whether it's through flood or fire, and you know, it wasn't about necessarily, you know, what clothes do they need? What are they going to do about their insurances? What are they? You know, most importantly, they just needed somebody to just sit there and listen and vent and talk through the situation, um, whether it's the trauma um, or just their personalised experience or a family or friend of theirs. So I think um, over the last four years in particular, um, I think all Australians would agree that, um, you know, Lifeline um, has been there um, for every single person through some of the toughest times um, and will continue to, to do so. The way you shared that, Scott, I, I guess it just it had me thinking about 
the way Lifeline's evolved with society that, you know, it's not you're coming through one 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 way now. There's the, this and the tech service, other ways, and, you know, it's being available so people from all walks of life can, can access Lifeline in a way they feel comfortable to. Yeah, and certainly I think one of the, the big changes from us from a national point of view is is that move into more community-based service deliverables and, and training in particular um, and understanding that that wealth of knowledge and data that we've had, you know, for 50 years in Lifeline um, put into um, other aspects of um, service delivery uh, have a very valuable space. You know, we have a data collection that is um, built over 50 years of knowledge that has only been, you know, shared to our crisis support workers uh, and, and training crisis support workers. So, so moving that information and knowledge um, into community has been really important. But, you know, also Lifeline being, you know, um, a lead stakeholder in, you know, consultation with federal and state governments. Um, you know, if Lifeline's not at the table um, in your discussions, um, I think you really should be asking a question as, as why not? Because, you know, um, Lifeline um, has taken more calls than anybody else in Australia during these times of crisis. Scott, as we wrap up, and it's been a, been a wonderful conversation and learning more about Lifeline and, and you know, the, the challenges Australians are, are facing, if someone listening is experiencing a mental health condition or thinks they may be at risk, what would you recommend they do? Yeah, certainly reach out to our digital services. Um, seek, seek help. Um, find hope is what we, is the key messaging of, of Lifeline. Uh, and know that there's people out there that are, that'll always be on the other end of that telephone line um, that will, that do care and have, you know, um, compassion, empathy and an understanding and will walk through that journey with you. Um, and also to be, um, be mindful that, um, you know, as a service as well, if we can't answer that call immediately, um, to, to stay online, be patient, um, we, we will get to that call. Such an important service, and Scott, thank you for your time today. Thank you. If you found any of the content in today's episode distressing, you can reach out to Lifeline by calling 13 11 14 or texting 0477 13 11 14. Links to further resources and information can also be found in the show notes. This was also the final episode of the first season of Good People to Know. Thank you so much for listening in and for all the kind messages I've received since we launched in July. We'd be very interested in your thoughts on the first season and we'd love to know what other topics or initiatives you would like to see in the future. Please click on the link below in the show notes section to complete our short survey.